Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Objectives come in all shapes and sizes, and understanding how to measure our movement toward them can be the key to making them add value to our lives. Christina Woodkey has been using objectives and key results, OKRs, to maintain an incredible level of productivity as her interests have led her from corporate design to academia to publishing, including her new book, a business fable called The Team That Managed Itself. In this episode of Hack the Process, Christina will tell us how she applies her techniques to improve work satisfaction in the classroom and the office, what people get wrong about gamification when it comes to game design, and why accountability is as important as regularity if you want to make progress on your goals. Today I'm speaking with Christina Woodkey, and she is the author of an upcoming book called The Team That Managed Itself. Christina, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And you? I am doing really well, and uh, I'm excited to get a chance to chat with you. This concept of teams managing themselves, it's something I'm familiar with a little bit. I've done some agile coaching, so I'd love you to tell me a little bit about what it, what you're thinking of and where you, how you came to the concepts. Oh my gosh. So no small questions. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Why waste time? <laughs> exactly. So... Gosh, there's so many things to think about here. Let me just say that the reason I started the book was I'd written Radical Focus, which is about objectives and key results. And a lot of people would call me and they'd say, well, what about performance reviews? And what about this? And what about that? And what about this problem? And I'd be like, well, that's just good management. And I realized that good management was not common sense, that a lot of people really had some shockingly outdated ideas about what it means to be a manager. And they think it means things like, I figure out what's important, and then I tell everybody what to do, and then I tell everybody how to do it. And human beings don't scale. The reality is that even if we only sleep four hours a night like Oprah or something, you know, there's still only 24 hours in the day, and you really can't do everything. And so what I wanted to do is bring forward these ideas that I knew were already out there, but people weren't getting. And because Radical Focus was written in the fable form, it allows people to really follow a story with characters they care about and go on a journey with them and increase that learning. So for the team that managed itself, it's actually built on a ton of amazing research, a lot of peer review papers that you never want to read because they're so <laughs> dense, and they're so boring, some books that are a bit difficult to read as well. And basically, I took that together, mashed it together with the OKR formula, Tried it out on my students first, because that's why we have students. And then I took it to my clients. My clients really loved it. And then I wrote it up as a fable. And so it's basically the idea that as a manager, it's much more of saying, this is the goal. You're smart people. Why don't you figure out how to get there? But here's a few structures that will allow you to get there more effectively. So with OKRs, you set your goal and you set your key results, but you meet every single week to say, are we getting closer? Are we getting farther? What are you doing towards it? And then people can argue, is that really the right thing to do? Is something else more valuable? And it keeps that momentum going instead of set and forget, which is what most people do with goals. 
So if we take that to be a best practice, and it's pretty simple, like don't just set your goals, check in every week and go, yes, we still want to do this. What are we gonna do to make it happen? Now let's take that for roles. Every week, you know, you set a job description and then you throw it away after you've hired someone, right? Well, what if instead that job description became a basis of your one-on-ones and you're constantly saying, okay, how's it going? Is this still relevant to you? What else are you doing? Are there new things coming up, which would make a better job description for the next person when that person is promoted or not promoted as the case may be. (laughs) And then norms. So this has become probably the biggest impact of all the work I've done is when we sit down together as a group, we just kind of like end up together. And we have this model in our head about how everything works. Like what time should our meeting start? How do we disagree? How is a decision made? But all those ideas inside people's heads are different because everybody has a different background. Everybody's worked at different companies. Or a lot of people come from different cultures, different countries. So what you want to do is at the very beginning of forming a team, or if you already have a pre-existing team, you could do it at the beginning of the quarter. You sit down and you say, how do we want to be when we are together? So does the meeting start at one o'clock? And that sounds like an easy one, but actually if everybody's like, wow, our campus is really huge. You can't get across campus that fast. We need 10 minutes or 15 minutes to get to the next meeting. Or, you know, in my country, if you say one o'clock, one fifteen is what you really mean, which there's a lot of countries where that's true. And then we get into things about decision. Like, do we argue and then agree and then never argue again? Do we interrupt each other? By setting these norms and then checking in Weekly, you don't have to go through every single norm. You just say, hey, is there anything coming up this week that we'd like to try to do differently? Okay, let's do it differently. Just as an Agile retrospective, which I know you're familiar with, with your background in Agile, but just a lightweight saying, are we the team we want to be? or Are we starting to get weird? And then at the end of the quarter, just like you judge your OKRs, just like you get a performance review at the end of the quarter, which I can talk more about if that's interesting, you should say, are we the team we want to be? How are we doing? And there's some great stuff out there. The Spotify health check model, the Carbon IQ dashboard. I've got a model as well that's fairly simple to use. But just taking a moment and say, are we really doing as well as we think we're capable of? That moment of reflection creates epic organizational learning. So it doesn't just make you better, it makes you smarter. Because people will say, well, we tried that and that didn't work. Okay, we did try this and this worked, so can we make it part of our formal practices? And that's what you want as a modern organization. You want a learning organization that's always accelerating. So the team that managed itself is about moving away from, hey, team, go build this because I think it's a good idea, to, hey, team, we need to have a top-selling game in France because France is our next interesting market. Go figure it out and get back to me. Let me know how that works out for you. And when you're able to do that as a leader, you spend so much more time communicating up, working on strategy. It frees you up, and you become a better member of the team as opposed to just a micromanager. And nobody likes a micromanager. There's so much in that. I got to tell you, one of the things that really catches my attention when you talk about these things is that the team leader is the manager of the team, but also the liaison for the team to the organization and is not so much involved in the work the team is doing, but rather involved in making sure that they have the resources that they need and that they're aligned to the overall organization's mission. Absolutely. I think that's one of the the things I don't see people talking about enough about the product manager role. So most of the time that team leader is a product manager, not always, I know. And they spend so much time running around, solving feuds, getting the spec from the designer to the engineer because the engineer won't be bothered to talk to the designer, just all this chaos. But 
once the team is running itself, then they can do the critical job, which is evangelist. And that means doing a roadshow, going to the other people within the organization and talking about why the work they're doing is incredibly interesting and important. They can build allyships. They can keep relationships healthy. They can sell upwards. That's a really, really critical role. And I don't see it talked about enough. It's true. I'm, I'm remembering back to the days of Guy Kawasaki and the Mac and the old original concept of evangelism for an organization. But inter- he was an external evangelist. We need internal evangelists as well. Otherwise, your feature is the one that people, everybody's like, what is this? Why are we spending money on this? Let's dump it off the budget. You know, you need that, <laughs> that mind share to keep your projects alive. It's absolutely true. Everybody thinks about marketing externally, but there's a whole concept of entrepreneurship in addition to entrepreneurship about how you manage your career within an organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love the idea that you've structured your books into fables, which I think is very unusual for this type of work. I'm curious about that. Well, it's not a great way to get respect. I think the people who write fables have mixed results. So I first got into it from Patrick Lencioni's classic Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which I just loved. Like the first time I read it, I thought, oh, my God, this is why my organization is so broken. And I love stories. I'm a huge reader of science fiction and romance and fantasy, and I read a lot of business books. But the thing is, when I'm reading fiction, I'm loving it. I'm like, I can't wait to turn the page. And when I'm reading nonfiction, I'm like, okay, I read two pages. Can I, can I go now? <laughs> and I wanted people to go on a journey and have that sort of emotional experience as well as the intellectual experience of working on a really hard problem. And there's some great books. There's The Phoenix Project, which is introduces DevOps, and I think it's responsible for the rise of DevOps. And then the goal, of course, is the granddaddy of it all. You can argue about who moved my cheese. I'm not sure I'm going to call that fiction. It's pretty simply written. It's a fine book for, I don't know, eight-year-olds. But I know it's been a bestseller, so, you know, uh, can't argue with success. So... When I sat down to write Radical Focus, I thought, oh my God, I'm writing a book about an acronym. Could that be more boring, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, geez, uh, let's talk about OKRs and why are OKRs are important. And I thought, you know, instead, let's talk about human beings who are struggling with a problem that we'll all recognize, which is we have something really important to do and it's really hard and life keeps distracting us. It's like, oh, well, if you'll do this one thing, it'll be great. And if you do this other thing, it'll be really great. And so by showing people like actively struggling with real problems that other people face in the workplace, there's a lot more empathy. And then when the solution comes along, it becomes more powerful. Now on the team that managed itself, I pushed that a lot farther. This is like the anti-who moved my cheese. I tried to write real fiction, not just a morality tale. And it's a story based on real experiences, sort of smushed together, you know, to protect the innocent. But it's about what does it mean when you don't have a mentor? Because all these fables, you know, they all have this, like, wise guy who comes by and says, here's your answer, and then you adopt the answer, and then everything's perfect. And I was like, that's not how life is. It's like, you're getting a little bit of information here, you're inventing some things here, you're putting it together, you're talking to your coworker. And so the story of the team that managed itself is somebody who's really, really struggling. Allie's a product manager, was a product manager. She's just been promoted to general manager of a studio within her game design company, except her boss took all the good people. Mm-hmm. So suddenly she has to keep the game successful while trying to hire and fire and, prom- and uh, grow people all at once. So it's a ticking time bomb kind of story. And I think a lot of us have been dumped into the deep end sometimes and we realize we're doomed, but we don't want to be doomed. We want to, we want to win. We want to figure it out. So yeah. this is a story of, of figuring it out under really hard things. 
Yeah, I think that a lot of us can empathize with with being in that position and figuring out on the fly, you know, building the plane while it's in the air, figuring out exactly what you need to do. Classic, classic. The other thing I did was I put her in a toxic workplace. And I think that it can be really hard to figure out what is the right thing to do when everybody around you is doing the wrong thing. Like you feel like you're you're just barely struggling for survival. And I've had so many people who are like, how do I make my team healthy when the entire company is just sort of not doing as well? And living in Silicon Valley, you know, our answer is always quit because there's five other companies who are dying to hire you, right? But that's not what the rest of the country is like. The rest of the country is if you quit, there's not going to be so many choices and it's going to be really hard. And so the importance of being able to stay and fix your company and fix your team and make something that really works felt like something that was important to me. You mentioned specifically that mentorship was a big part of what you were focusing in on. Yeah. You know, when I was much, much younger and I was working on my career as a designer, I, I did what a lot of young designers do. I went looking for a mentor and I was like, will you mentor me? Will you mentor me? And everybody's like, uh, I would love to, but I don't have time. Like you don't get to find a, me a mentor. And so I ended up cobbling together mentorship by having somebody who would answer my questions about design problems here and somebody I could email if I was having a personnel issue here. And I realized that the reality is nobody comes along and is wise and kind. We know, we all want our Obi-Wan Kenobi, but he never comes. Instead, it's like this little piece of this one book I read and this friend who listened when I cried on their shoulder. And so the book ends up being my lead has to cobble together a mentorship out of a collection of the people she talks to and, and books she reads and things she thinks. I think that's a big, difficult thing for young people to learn. You know, I teach and my students are always like thinking if they could just find the right mentor, then that person would have all the answers and they would guide them forward in their career. And it's like, that person does not exist. They don't show up. You'll have many mentors and each mentor will help you a little bit, but it's very unusual to be taken under the wing of one person. And I think it's even harder if you're a woman, to be quite honest. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I noticed you've also done some work specifically with, with women and with women visibility in the speakerships. You founded an organization called Women Talk Design. Well, I've got to say that the world can be overwhelming sometimes. And sometimes all the things you want to fix, like how can I help climate change and politics and, and racism, like it's just, you just get overwhelmed. You have to lay down and watch some food TV to recover. So I thought, is there one small thing that I actually have the ability to affect and I thought, you know, I speak at a lot of conferences and I care a lot about the, you know, if you if you don't see it, you can't be it. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, which means if you don't see women on stage, then it's much more difficult to imagine yourself on stage. If you don't see people of color on stage, it's less likely to think of yourself doing it. And so it just started as a whim. I thought, I'll just make this directory of women. I got binders full of women, as the old joke goes. <laughs> One year when I was teaching at CCA, two of my best students, they were like so smart, amazing women, didn't get internships because of bureaucratic nonsense. So I thought I'll raise a GoFundMe and I'll be able to get a job for at least one of them. And it was so popular. I got internships for both of them and they did a ton of research because they're good designers. And they found out that actually one of the biggest problems is that women suffer from imposter syndrome and they often struggled to feel comfortable applying to talks or getting on stage. So I partnered up with Danielle Barnes, who's the CEO of Women Talk Design, and she came up with the idea of a new offering, which is training sessions for women. But they're not just training sessions, they're community building events. So you go there, you spend the weekend being trained, and then 
after that, you join a group where you keep talking to each other and they'll do things like challenge each other, look at each other's talks. And that community is what's creating the real resilience when people are like, oh, I don't know. I'd love to speak at Webstock, but I don't know. I'm not very important. And then somebody's like, you have things to say, lady. You get up there. I want to see it. <laughs> yes, that, that concept of peer mentorship is also something that doesn't get discussed enough. Oh, yeah. And I love peer mentorship. I mean, like I said, well, I didn't say it in my book. It's mostly Allie and her best friend, the CTO, and they're figuring everything out together. And yeah, our, our community, our friends, that's where mentorship really comes from. Now I imagine you've been on both sides of the mentor relationship yourself. Yes. I feel sorry for anybody who has me as a mentor because I think I've made ADHD into a lifestyle choice. <laughs> I'm always doing so many things and it's hard, but my students have learned to track me down. So I have students from like three years ago who will, you know, say, Christina, I'm going to buy you a beer. Tell me when. And then they'll drag me out and I'll give them some advice. But it can be a month away. So again, it's not that dream of that mentor who's always there as a resource for you. It's more someone who will show up when you really need them. And I have women like that, too. And so you've mentioned a couple of times that you have students just positioning you right now in your career and in your life. You're a lecturer at Stanford. You're a publisher. You're a speaker, a designer from the past. I'm not sure if you're currently doing design jobs. How do you <laughs> position yourself these days? Uh, my Twitter bio says it all. I contain multitudes. <laughs> I'm complicated. Humans are not supposed to be pieces in an assembly line. We're big. We're messy. We're interested in lots of stuff. I can't say that what I'm doing now is what I'll do in five years. I know I'll be happy. I know I'll be interested in stuff. I don't know what it's going to be. And I've just always followed my nose. I mean, I got my first job in the web by doing a gradual uh, Marx routine with the head of a startup. And uh, he was so amused, he gave me a job, which didn't have the name of information architect, but was basically information architecture. And after that, I just followed my nose. It's like, oh, this code thing looks interesting. I think I'll teach it to myself. Hmm. I wonder how hard it is to design. The answer is very, but still, it's interesting and problems are fun. Then I was like, well, how can we keep making bad products? I don't have power as a designer. Maybe if I become a product manager and I became a product manager, I'm like, oh, maybe it's the business that causes trouble. And then I became a GM and then I realized nobody's in charge. Everything is just this very complicated, messy disaster of communications. It really doesn't matter where you are in the organization as long as you're very good at communicating the value of your ideas. So I've played a lot of the different roles and I will tell you, there's no role you'll ever have in your entire life where you can just say, make that blue and somebody will make it blue without arguing with you. Or we need to now build this. No, everything has to have a reason. It has to have a story. It has to have pathos, logos, and ethos. The three Greek <laughs> argumentative. I love Greek words. It makes me feel so academic. <laughs> you have to have the emotion, right? The pathos. Ethos is, of course, authority. You have to say, by what authority should we do this? Either I'm really friggin' old and I know what I'm talking about. That's a classic kind of authority. But a better authority is I've talked to 20 users. I've done all this research. That's a, a much better authority to work with. And then finally, logos. I think engineers love leading with logic. They're like, let me just be very rational, rational to you. But the reality is that most people make decisions with their hearts. And until you learn how to make arguments with all three of those, you're not going to win many arguments. And so <laughs> learning to communicate was everything for me. 
it's a very good way to frame things. And I think about the fact that I've allowed the gray to show up in my beard in order to emphasize the ethos of my arguments. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's true. Leading with leading with the heart and incorporating all three is, is, is really essential. Uh, and of course, you have found yourself now, you've put yourself now in academia, which is known to be incredibly political and very difficult to manipulate. You know, everybody talks about that. But it's also a great place to hide because in the reality is that most teachers, as long as you're getting good reviews, you know, you're, you're teaching evaluations, you're a little dictator. You know, you go in there and you decide how your classroom is going to run. And as long as the students agree that's a great way to run a classroom, you're fine because people only care about your reviews. So teaching is actually very relaxing. And then research can also be very relaxing as long as you publish. I think the reason academia has such a, a bad rap, and I discovered this when I first started at CCA, is because you have to stay out of the bureaucracy. The moment you step into a chair position or anything like that, you're immediately caught up in what I referred to as the beast, this giant, complicated, disastrous thing that can barely make a change happen. And so I find that it's just easier. So far, I've taught here and I taught at CCA to really focus on the things that I can affect and learn to work within the system, which is about the antithesis of how I started. Like in industry, I was just all the startup, disrupt, rule breaker, let's burn it all down. And now I'm like, well, maybe in 10 years, we might have a master's of interaction design here. <laughs> um, it's just, it's a very big change, but I kind of like it because I'm not burned out. I'm not working 80 hours a week. I feel saner and change does happen and it is for the good and it is a bit of a slog but i don't know i think i think academia i know there's there's bad places but when i look at the terrible places i've worked in industry i don't think academia is any worse than that for sure i imagine it's also refreshing working with younger fresher minds or minds that are at least at the learning stage where they can bring in new ideas oh my god the students are the best the students are everything they are amazing the only reason i don't despair for the human race is because the students are so good. They're so passionate. And I feel like at least here, maybe we're in a moment in time, but the students want to fix things so badly. They want to make a more equitable system. They want to fight against injustice. They want to fight against racism and sexism. They want to fight against climate change. I mean, they're just like, you know, I'm surprised they aren't yelling at me for messing up the world, but they are very, very eager to make things better. And so I'm like, well, here's what I know about how to make things better. You know, I hope I hope you succeed. The, thing, the reason I came to Stanford was because I realized this was a chance to work with students who were going to go on to be the CEO of the next Facebooks and the next Googles and everything. I mean, let's be honest, Stanford is a, a feeder into the execs of the Silicon Valley. And I thought, if I can have one moment in one classroom where I get my students to realize that there's a human being on the other side of that code, I will have done my job. And that that person has their own values, their own ethos, their own morality. And that's something worth understanding and respecting. Human-computer interaction is something also that gets a bit of a bad rap, but all computers are nothing until they interact with a human. And I think we really need to spend our time working a lot harder to figure out how to make those interactions much better for every individual human and all of society. It's one of the things that I work with engineers a long time to to get them to understand the fact that when they are writing code, they're not writing something for a computer to understand. They're writing something for a person to understand. They're writing a symphony and somebody's going to listen to it. Absolutely. And you want them to be affected. 
So what is it that you lecture on? What is it that you teach? What are your, what are your classes, I suppose? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So a couple of different things. One is I teach a class that's called 247, which is a design studio. And it's the second class students take where they're really introduced to the design methodology. But working with Julie Stanford and Michael Bernstein, we've made a pretty big change in it. So HDI and academia, as you know, changes slowly, except when it's small and nice and localized, like where I am, this is where I can make a big change, is in the past, it was just sort of taught, like, if you know how to design one thing, you know how to design everything. Like, there's this monolithic design process. And you hear that a lot when people talk about UX design. They're like, yeah, I can design a railroad or a factory or a pencil or and anybody who's saying that to you, you got to be just like rolling your eyes at them because that's complete crap. So what we're doing is we're basically creating these flavors of the studio. So one is designed for understanding. So what kind of things do you need to know if you're trying to help a human being understand a hairy hairball of a situation? So for example, fake news, or last year I did the cultural construct of gender and students were like, where did it come from? Why are there boys toys and girls toys? What's with the sports scandal with women who have naturally high occurring amounts of testosterone. And then how do you design a way for people to really understand that intellectually and emotionally? So if you look at the work of Nikki Case and his parable of the polygons and information design, but information design is becoming more interactive with computers. So that class is really about understanding. There's also design for work, which is probably what you'd think of when you think of software design, like how do I make Adobe, Photoshop? There's design for social, which is obviously a giant hairball all by itself. Like, how do we make places where people can talk to each other and hopefully not kill each other? Design for services, when you have to think about software as part of a larger creature. So Julie and I are teaching these these sort of variations of different kinds of design problems, families of design problems. Then the other thing I teach, I only teach it because everybody wanted it and nobody was doing it, but now it's become the most wonderful thing in my life is I teach game design. I teach a class called Serious Games, which is games that have a purpose beyond entertainment. So they can educate, they can model systems, they can create empathy. It's an amazing genre. There's things like That Dragon Cancer or Dying in Darfur, where you play a game and it creates this amazing amount of empathy and understanding of someone who's in a very difficult situation that's not like yours. And that's become an insanely popular class. And then I'm going to be adding a fundamentals of game design as well. I don't understand why game design and I don't know even what the word is, mundane design. Like what's the opposite of game design, the design (laughs) of everyday things? You know, I don't know why they were separated because there's so much we can learn from game design. And we get this thing called gamification. And it's like somebody just looked at game design and said, oh, badges, rewards. We'll just give people a cookie and they'll do whatever we want. And no, that does not work. It's like a surface understanding of games. So what I try to help students do is really understand what makes fun happen? What makes interest happen? Where does compulsion come from? Where is addiction play in? When we're making these things, how do we make sure they're they're the right thing for the person and the situation? How is the software mediating that relationship in a way that's that's satisfying and still empowers the end user? So I feel like game design should be part of every single design curriculum. I'm a little bit of a, a nut job in that way. <laughs> I don't think you're a nut job at all in that way. I, I, when I look at what's going on with gaming and with the coming generations, it feels to me like gaming is the literature of this next generation. Oh, my God. So did I, I have this crazy theory, and it is, like many of my crazy theories. So 
think about how willing we are to iterate and fail in modern tech, right? That's like the lean startup way. Everybody's like, okay, you go out, you try something, it doesn't work, you learn from it, you try something else, you keep going. And there's, there's this incredible embracing of failure. I think that's because this generation grew up on games. And when you play a game, you try it, you fail, and you try again. And maybe you run out of lives and you have to go back to the beginning, but you can still try again. And I think there's sort of an iterative mindset that comes out of playing games and you poke around and you figure out what all the elements of the system are and you figure out if there's cheats or they're not cheats. And I feel like if you look at the tech entrepreneurs, they are all treating their careers as if they were video games. Yes, it's true. Move fast, break things, and then you get another life. Yeah. Now, the downside of that is, of course... You break other people's lives along the way. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think what we need next is a lot more, uh, you know, Stuart Brand wrote The Art of the Long View. I think we need more of that. It's like one of the more pragmatic approaches to futurism, where what you do is you get a group of people together. They look at all the various factors informing a given situation. They come up with several different futures, and then they figure out what are the indicators that would say that future was starting to happen. That's like collapsing a beautiful book into a couple of sentences. So I'm really sorry, Stuart. Broke your book. That's okay. We'll link to it in the show notes so people can find out more. Awesome. It's such a good book, and it deserves a renaissance again because it's so good. And Peter Sang, the great system sinker himself, was his co-author. So if we could take that willingness to iterate, but then also put together a little bit of a longer thinking together, I think you know, maybe we can turn this industry around. No, I think you're working with the right people because the, as, as you said, the students that you're working with are the ones who are already familiar with thinking in this way. And since you're already innovating in the format that you're using with your books, have you considered writing a game for your next one? Making a game is a lot of work. Making a well, writing a game, I mean, uh, the, my favorite kind of fiction is narrative. So for obvious reasons, since I'm a writer, it's a lot of work, a lot of work. Games have a long playtime. I mean, it's funny, even becoming game literate takes a stunning amount of time. It's like every, most games are about three books long, four books long. Like they're just, they're 20, 30, 50 hours of gameplay, right? So even to become game literate takes a huge amount of time. And then on top of it all, building a game, it's like if you write a story, it has a beginning, middle, and end. If you write interactive fiction, it has a beginning, 14 middles, three ends. And then if you're talking about moving to open world situations, it's even more complex. And that degree of complexity, I'd have to find partners and I haven't found the right partner. So if I found somebody who thought like me and uh, was the right partner, yeah, I would definitely think about making a game for that. But right now I have to be just happy teaching students to think about it. Well, I know that there are some game makers in my in my audience, so perhaps somebody out there will, will pick up on that because that would be fascinating. But as you say, you know, learning just the mechanics of how games work. I'm a Generation X, and I did not grow up gaming. As the technology has grown up around me, I've become more and more interested in it, and I'm spending more time these days in my Quest headset than I, can, than I care to admit. But it's fascinating how how deep and intricate the involvement is with all of this stuff and how much, how much goes into putting something like that together. Absolutely. And that's why gamification makes me so angry is people make it sound like you just sprinkle a little game on top of things and it'll be just fine. It's like, no, <laughs> you know, games are big, complicated beasts and making a good one is hard. It's like making a hit Hollywood movie and Photoshop at the same time. Yes. And, you know, even the term gamification has gotten such, it, it associates gaming with, you know, bad automatic dopamine response and the manipulativeness that comes from that. It's horrible. I mean, people think that dopamine is like a happiness drug, and it's not. 
dopamine is a drug that you release when you're anticipating happiness. So if you're basically putting people in a state of having dopamine all the time, you're keeping them in a constant state of arousal without ever satisfaction. I don't think I have to explain that in any more explicit terms. Mm -hmm. It's just mean and nasty. It is a terrible thing to do to people. What you want to do is give people something that's meaningful, something that's satisfa satisfaction. Help them understand why doing this thing is important to their lives. Go for the intrinsic motivation, not the cheap reward. Now, that's a very good point. And it brings me right back to your career, because one of the things that I notice about you is that you are a finisher. You start a lot of things. You've got a lot of things going, but you finish a lot of things, too. And that's really impressive. <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> Rats. That was, that was my next question. <laughs> I have some, I have a couple theories. I mean, one is that I work in public a lot. I've actually finally talked to my friend, Steven Anderson and working in public more. And when you're working in public, people are like, so that book ever coming out or you going to finish that thing you talked out? Like it's accountability partners is a big part of what makes OKRs work. And it's what makes everything work. I use OKRs for everything I do. Now, that's relatively recent. That's from after I left Zynga. But for the last seven years or so, I set quarterly OKRs for myself. And then I set a status email every single Monday to both my coach. And now I have a small group of women who I'm sort of teaching my method to. So they're my accountability ladies as well. And it's so wonderful because people are like, you can do this. Don't give up. It's coming, you know. It's very satisfying. I always think of the words of Henry Miller, who said, never start a new book until you finish writing the last one. And that one's kept me out of a lot of trouble, too, because I always <laughs> have about five books I'd like to be writing. And I just write them on Post-it notes and put them on the wall. I can see where that would be useful. So you have, so you have a group of people who are like doing a peer mentorship sort of thing with you, as well as a coach. Oh, yeah. Well, I started with a coach, and then the peer mentorship was theoretically for them. I didn't realize how much amazing things I would get out of it as well. So my friends, Livia Labate and Donna Lichow, amazing women. Donna's written a book on storytelling for design. Livia has worked for so many cool companies, NPR, etc. We both wrote about our personal OKRs on Medium, and I linked to it. So I wrote my personal OKRs three years later, and I linked to her Medium article. What's really interesting about working with them is they both hacked the format. So, you know, I'm, I'm the OKR master. You must listen to what I say. No, not these ladies. <laughs> So Livia takes it full, getting things done. She has all these extra things she tracks about confidence levels and percent done and stuff like that. And then Donna is like the force of chaos. She's like, ah, I don't know. I'm not sure, but I think my goal is this. And I'm going to do these couple things. And both work. Weirdly enough, like all three of us have seen epic, epic progress. Donna's got her coaching business going since we started doing the OKRs. Livia has made huge strides in personal life goals. And obviously, I'm still writing books and getting them out. So it's really made me think about, you know, I talk about the right way of doing things, but the right way of doing things seems to be less important than the right doing it with the right people and doing it. That weekly rhythm of just saying, what are you doing? Are you doing anything towards your goals? What's going on? Seems to be enough to keep us moving forward. So accountability partners, I would say, is the single highest value thing we do, honestly. Wow. So, so the right way of doing things isn't about doing things the right way. It's about doing them and doing them with others. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Very much so. And the funniest thing is every so often 
we'll get really down. One of us will be like in a super blue streak because work's been crazy or you feel like you aren't making progress and we'll hop on a video chat like this and we'll just talk it out. And so, yeah, I would say one of the things I feel like I've learned both working in activism in my small way and in business is that community creates resiliency. Like if I could give one quote for people to take, community creates resiliency. If you have a small group of people that are working with you and you check in with them regularly, you're less likely to burn out. You're less likely to lose hope. You're less likely to give up. It just makes all the difference in the world. And I think if you're working on activism in particular, there's a huge burnout. They talk a lot about self-care, but I don't think self-care is as important as group care. Get yourself in a tight little group of people who care about the same things and just take care of each other. If you're really bad at self-care, somebody will go, you deserve a massage. And then you'll be like, yeah, I do deserve a massage. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, it's just it's just better. Finding that right group, I think, is a critical part of that. And your new book, The Team That Managed Itself, I'm, I'm guessing then that this factor, this element of having a team working around you all with a shared mission is part of what drives this forward. Oh, it's a big, big thing. Having that shared mission is really important. But also, I think the big difference is I got to pick my accountability group. They're all my friends. I like them. We have the same values. We have the same way of talking. With teams, you don't know what you're going to get. And I tell my students this all the time. I'm like, I know you hate your team right now, and you're just waiting for this project to be over so they'll go away. At work, they never go away. And so you have got, you have got to learn to talk about the things that are driving you crazy. You have got to learn to say, you know, when we say we're meeting at one o'clock and I'm here at 105 and you're here at 120, I get angry. You have, and some people can't even say that. They can't even say that really simple thing. And so learning how to communicate where your expectations and other people's actions are not meeting is absolutely vital to creating that kind of healthy team. And what I've seen as I've led clients and students both through the process of doing the team retrospective is afterwards, they're kind of shaken, they're emotionally shaken up, and they're really close to each other. There's an intensity. They feel seen, they feel heard, they feel connected, they've learned things about themselves that maybe they don't like, but they've also learned things about themselves they do like. A good team retrospective makes for a much tighter team, a closer team, a better team. And every team member gets feedback, but they get feedback in the interest of making themselves more successful, making the team more successful. And that is one of those things where I can say it right now, but there's like a hundred things that go into making that successful. So you can't just go, hey, you're late all the time. I hate that. And go, oh, now we're going to be really close. Let's hug. That's not going to work. Sure. No, I mean, I can think of so many things I could double click on to get more details. For example, when I think about the relationship between OKRs and performance reviews or even team dynamics and performance reviews. Oh, my God. Yes. No kidding. I mean, that was the number one question, which is, wait a second. It says we can't use OKRs for performance reviews. What do we do for performance reviews? And I'm like, what were you doing before OKRs? I don't understand this. this performance reviews are not a new concept. But there's like a bunch of things you can do that make life much better. One is do performance reviews quarterly. Even if you do annual compensation, you won't remember that far back. So you need to set aside at the end of every quarter a one-hour conversation about what went wrong and what went back right. And it's kind of nice even if you don't have any bonuses attached to it because then it's just let's talk about how things went and what are we going to try next quarter to make it work better. So when you do get to that court, the end of year performance management, you have a much broader amount of information for it. Second of all, what goes into performance management? 
contributions towards the OKR, not whether you made your numbers or not, but did you contribute? Did you make a real push towards the OKR? Another one that I think people don't talk about enough is going back to that job description problem. Like this really does make me crazy. People write dreadful job descriptions, hire terribly, throw it in the trash. If you write a really good job description and use it as part of your one-on-one and evolve it based on what the job really needs as opposed to what you think the job needs, then you have this paper trail of a quarter's worth of one-on-one conversations. So now you know what has this person done to fulfill their role. So we've got fulfilling your role and we've got contributing to OKRs. Then the third piece for performance review should be, are you growing? Are you growing your skills? Are you growing your knowledge? And that one's really for the employee, but the reality is that if the company invests in the employee, not only are they more loyal, but they're a better employee. They know more things. So the manager should always be planning with the employee, how are they going to grow their capabilities? Are they going to go to a conference? Are they going to go to a training? Are they going to pick up new challenges in their role? How are they growing? Okay, so we've got fulfill your role. We've got contribute to OKRs. We've got growth. And then the last one's a tricky one because this has come from my clients. A lot of companies have, I don't know, like Formula X. So they want to add something like, are you contributing to the well-being of the company? Or are you embodying the company's uh, brand? Or, you know, some, some companies have a fourth thing that they like to add. And that's really up to the company. If you want to connect performance review to being googly, all I say to them is, you're going to have to define that. Because if I can't tell you what googly looks like, I don't know how I can possibly grade anybody on that. And I certainly don't want my compensation tied to it. No, I really don't. <laughs> I need that written down and I need that measurable. I need a good key result connected to that. So I'm okay with companies saying, hey, we want you to be a living representative of our brand. I'm like, okay, so tell me how you're going to measure that. Just let me know. What does that look like? Is it the way the clients talk to us about you, you know, because you're a client representative? Or is it the way your teammates talk about you because you're, you know, you're a teammate? You know, you, you have to have something. If it's not measurable, then it's going to be ugly. Because those intangibles are almost always the place where we jam all our biases, unconscious or conscious. So you just can't, you can't let something like that squeak by unchallenged. No, I would definitely see that. And, uh, you know, and you're coming from the world of design. And that's a place where the company has the opportunity to interface most with the clients and with the customers, because you're seeing what the customers actually need and what they actually do, which is something that I think a lot of companies insulate their employees from they don't give the opportunity to interact enough with the customers and with the clients. Yeah, I think you the problem is when you don't connect with the customers, you tend to obsess with the person sitting in your building. And that's where we get these weird silo turf wars, because the only if the designer never gets to talk to the customer, only talks to the engineer, only talks to the PM, they, they're in a fog, they're in a mystery, they start fighting with each other. But if you spend time with the customer and you understand what the customer is really struggling with and how they failed with the competitor and how they're trying to get things done, it just keeps you rooted more profoundly in the company's mission. And if there's people who aren't going to have that opportunity... I think it's a job of user research, design, customer service to bring that voice of customer into the rest of the company so that everybody can remember it's not about us on our little tiny boat fighting with each other. 
It's about competing with real competitors and making real people's lives better. You're also accomplishing a lot. And when we when you talk about the role of a manager in a company, I'm imagining managers trying to make time for all of the things that they're trying to do. And I'm wondering how you structure your time so that you get time to do all of the things that you're doing. Well, there's a couple things I do. So I assume you've read Manager Time, Maker Time by Paul Graham. It's such a good book because it points out that if we're going to get deep creative work done, we need like three hours, four hours of time in a row that is not interrupted. And anybody who's been writing a long form book or making a complicated design or coding, you know that like there's a half hour of just ramp up of like getting everything in your working memory so you can work with it. So I really, really struggle with this. So I block out every single morning. Every single morning on my calendar is completely blocked out. And it's one of two things. It's either a day I run or a day I write. And that's it. And running, I say running, it's really more like walking and hiking and panting miserably and running downhill a little bit. But still, I like to go out to the trails. As long as you're enjoying yourself. Well, it's the thing is, it's beyond enjoying myself. I take a little notebook and I take a pen and I put it in my back pocket, and then I put on a podcast and I ignore it. And at the beginning of the trail, I say, okay, brain, here's the problem I'm worried about. Okay, brain, I don't know what to do with this plot problem. And then I'll ignore it. I'll just listen to it. And by the time I get to the top of the hill, my brain will be like, okay, here's the answer. It's the weirdest thing. And it works every time. It's like, I told my subconscious to work on this problem. And then something about the walk, the energy, the blood to the brain, I get a good answer. So I don't know if you've read Murakami's what I talk about when I talk about running. I have. That's, that's one of the books that I gift to people. I love that. I love that book so much. And I think there's a profound relationship between creative work and physical activity that he captures so beautifully. And I found it to be true in my life as well. It's like anytime I've got a real problem, the best thing I could do is spend two hours moving my body around in space. And nature is also supposed to be incredibly good for you, promotes healing, creates creativity. So going out to a trail, doing anything, walking slow, whatever, it will unlock problems for me. And then the next day, when I'm sitting here, I have to close mail, I have to close Twitter. I have these cube timers, which I frigging adore. So they're very simple. You just turn them on their side and it'll beep. And I'll be like, Christina, you're not allowed. You have to stay on this tab for that length of time. 20 minutes is usual for me. It's like the Pomodoro system. And I'll just say for 20 minutes, you're stuck here, whether it be writing or organizing a class or whatever deep work I want to do. When it gets up, it goes off. I'll get up. I'll move my body. But that, that's what I worry about the students. They're all on their laptops. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can see the RSA baking from here. This is terrible. But yeah, so I just use the uh, I use the cube timers. And so I'll have 20 minutes of work and then I'll get up, I'll stretch, maybe I'll change to standing desk and I'll work for another 20 minutes. And that's what my work mornings look like. And that rhythm of work and contemplation and work and contemplation keep me going. And I did this because I read this book, Growing Gills. And what you do is you try to spend the entire day writing. It might've been that, it might've been something else. It might've been Rachel Aaron. Anyway, you spend, try to spend the whole day writing. Like you just sit in front of the desk and you know when you're able to and when you lose your mind. And it's like one of the most painful things you'll do in your entire life, but it will allow you to figure out where your creativity periods are. And I found out that I have two hours of creativity for every meal I eat. So I have a couple of hours in the morning. I have a little bit, uh, I have about one after lunch. And then I have like two hours in the evening if I eat dinner really early. And it taught me that I where to put my meetings. So I put my meetings in my dead time. 
which is mostly two o'clock, three o'clock. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's different when you're in academia again. That's when you know you have to work yourself around the academics calendar too. Oh well, it's really hard when you're a manager because your job is to have meetings. Like everybody cusses out meetings, but the reality is, if you're a manager, that's where you get things done. Meetings are where you talk people into things, you understand things, you make social connections. Meetings are real work. If you're a manager. Or if you're running Agile ceremonies, for that matter, because the, the, the Agile ceremonies are where so much gets done. I'm a huge fan of Agile rituals. If you've read Radical Focus, you know, because so much of the OKR process is a child of Agile. So the things that you're getting accomplished, it's it's remarkable how much you get done. And I'm curious if your routine has changed over the years. Like right now, you're using this Pomodoro with the timer and how it's evolved. Well, I think I got a lot done when I was younger because I was, my boyfriend was in France. And that's a very convenient place to keep someone you're in love with if you want to get things done. <laughs> so, <laughs> And then when we got married, we're both workaholics. You know what, though? I think it's harder to get things done now because so many companies are vying for our attention. I think we're in the middle of a giant attention war. And how many times have you opened like a, a tab on your browser and your browser says, allow random ass publication to send you notifications. And I'm like, oh, hell no. But I think about on the phone where I said yes to almost all of them for so long. And it's really hard. You see a notification and you like just want to scratch the itch. You just need to see what that notification is about, even though you know it's going to be crap. You have to look. Or is there an email there? Or has anybody replied to my tweet? And it's really hard to do the deep focused thinking because every single company wants your attention. In fact, I feel like human attention is the tragedy of the commons. Everybody's trying to monetize it, but it's going to damage our society. And if you look at people like Nir Eyal, who wrote one book about how to take advantage of that and how to hack people's attention, and now he's writing a book, Indistractable, that says, okay, people, here's how to fight back. I'm like, are you an arms dealer? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like selling to both sides. Um, sorry, Nir. But I think we went in with such good hopes. Like when you're a startup, you're like, oh God, how am I going to survive? How am I going to be successful? How am I going to make my investors happy? And you get really desperate and you're like, okay, well, here's a hack and here's a way I can get people to pay attention to me. But everybody's doing that. And what we've ended up with is a death to attention. There was a paper recently that showed that if your phone is sitting on the table, closed, even with the wallet, even face down, you can't concentrate as effectively. And nobody else in the meeting can either. Just the presence of a phone is enough of a reminder that you're missing something somewhere, that it triggers our lack of concentration. So I think one of the biggest things we're going to have to do is if anybody wants to accomplish anything, we're going to have to change our ways. And I get so much crap from my family. They're like, why aren't you on Facebook? We don't know what's going up with you. And I'm like, why don't you call me? And I'll tell you what's going on with me. <laughs> um, or... People are like, hey, you're not responding to your text. And I'm like, I plug in my phone at five o'clock and I don't look at it again till the morning. Live with it. You know, it's just not going to happen. But you're a very aggressive tweeter. Yes, but it's broadcast. <laughs> you're one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. How do you make the time with the distraction that it creates to tweet? Because again, that, that interrupts your flow, I'm sure. It's terrible. No, I have to I have to close it. I really do have to close it. I'm at war with Twitter because first I had to bury it two folders deep on my phone so I wouldn't constantly be looking at it. So I have to make extra efforts. And every time I have an extra effort to open it, it is a chance for me to reconsider the wisdom of opening it. And then on my machine, I close the tab. So I have to reopen the tab anytime I want to tweet. 
And I got into a really bad habit of just tweeting all the time. Like I was kind of shocked. I looked at my Medium articles and I hadn't written anything till Octo- since October. And I officially have the excuse of my latest book is going through editing, but I backslid hard. I backslid hard. And it's very satisfying to say, this is wrong. And then a bunch of people on Twitter go, yeah, that's so wrong. But that's not progress. That's not getting things done. It's just, it's, it's very satisfying emotionally, but it's not, it's not real work. And I feel like our world's become full of fake work. Like email is not real work. It's fake work. Twitter feels like fake writing. And I'm really interested in trying to put real things into my life. And I know I backslide just like an alcoholic or somebody who smokes. Like there's times when I'm on there way more than it's good for me and it's not good for my creative process. Like right now, I feel like I'm trying to detox and it feels like detoxing. One of the things you do with Twitter that is definitely good is that you amplify other people's messages by retweeting aggressively too. Yeah, I try to. I try to find good things. I find the secret of Twitter is who do you follow? One of the best things I did was I've spent a lot of time following people in other industries. First of all, I follow a ton of science fiction and fantasy writers. I follow a ton of scientists. I follow a ton of illustrators. I follow poets. That creates a joy. So when I open it, my stream is actually full of joy as well as other things. That's why I have interesting things to retweet. But also I often tweet things that I just find as I'm going along, you know, because I do a lot of research for my classes in order to make sure that a class has gender and race representation. I will read like five books for every one article I assign students because I'm really working hard to make sure I have diversity. But it means I consume sort of ridiculous quantities of media. And I try to send them out to the world via Twitter if I find anything good, even if I can't use it myself. So I do try to put things out there. I don't know. It's hard to say. I have a very weird relationship with Twitter and I can't decide whether I should give it the boot like Facebook. I mean, Facebook was like literally making me ill. I would just get so depressed every time I was on it. Twitter, I haven't quite tuned it right. And we'll see. Maybe one day I'll just walk away. No, as a society, you know, the, our relationship with social media is certainly something that's evolving. And it's, it evolves really quickly because new things show up all of the time. I'm not proud of the map I tweet. <laughs> so I, I know my listeners are going to want to find out more about you and how to get your book. So where should I send them? It's Elegant Hack. Elegant like being elegant and hack like a bad writer or somebody who hacks into software. I got that URL in like 97 or 98 or something. And I'm like, it, at this point, I've had it for so long, I'll never give it up. So that's always a good place. Seawoodkey.com is a good place if you want to hire me or you're interested in the OKR work. But if you just want to know what I'm thinking about, Elegant Hacks is usually a pretty decent bet. And of course, the Twitters. <laughs> yes. Seawoodkey everywhere. The nice thing about having a weird ass name like me is I am literally Seawoodkey everywhere. So I'm pretty easy to find. I'm delighted that we had a chance to talk. Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your story with Hack the Process. Oh, my pleasure. I hope something helps somebody somewhere. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>